Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the, the miracles of this time in which we live and the chance to uh, visit with brothers and sisters uh, who you've connected with this place, with this church, and how you've sent forth your word into the world from this place. And uh, what an honor it is to have them with us here today. We pray they'll have a safe return. And Lord, we pray that your spirit will be with us as we look into your word again. Give us those ears that hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There is a word in our language that is considered a negative act in both its normal form and in its opposite form. And that's quite remarkable, for it suggests that to do the act is wrong and to not do the act is wrong. Does your life ever feel like that? Yeah, sometimes. But first, before I tell you the word, let me explain to you what I mean. In English, we have a grammatical trick, and that's of attaching a prefix to a word to change that word's meaning. So I'll give you an example here. Like the word cook. We know what cook is. You put something on the stove, and you, it warms up, and you cook it, or in the oven, or something like that. But you can add a word to it and completely change it. Overcook. You know what I'm talking about. That's not a good thing, is it? Or undercook. Or Recook means you didn't get it done the first time. You're going to have to try again. Now, there's actually one prefix in our, in our language that when you put it in front will actually turn the word into its opposite. And in the general form, it's, it's I-N. So it would be like incomplete. Now, it changes if it's like impossible because it's hard to do impossible or illogical. So it takes different forms, but it's the same idea. So like incomplete. And typically, when we attach a prefix to deliver an opposite meaning, we normally have attached a positive meaning to one of the forms and a negative to its opposite. So I'll give you an example here. On Thursday, Pastor Steve was happy because his sermon was complete. But on Monday, he was nervous because his sermon was incomplete. So you see the difference there and the experience. Now, I said that intentionally. It's a little <laughs> promo for Pastor Steve. He spoke at the bridge today. And uh, so if you have any doubts on what I say about this text, you're going to want to check that out because I think he got it right. So, so check that out and listen to what he said today. But it makes sense that when we, by use of a prefix, create the opposite of a word denoting an opposite action, it ought to be the case that one of those actions would be generally considered preferable than the other, right? I mean, the opposite of a good ought to be a not good, or the opposite of a not good ought to be a good. But as I mentioned at the start, there is at least one word in our language whose root form and opposite form both have come to denote a negative act. And here it is. The word discriminate. The opposite, indiscriminate. Neither one of those are good, are they? It's actually more a testimony to the reality that the meanings of words shift over time than anything in particular uh, else than that, but words take on new meanings. And sometimes a negative meaning can come to be attached to a word in a way that makes both it and its opposite form negative. Discriminate 
and indiscriminate. Now, let me give you the definitions here so you know what I'm talking about. Discriminate first. Now, the original meaning of this word is to recognize a distinction and to differentiate. That's where that word started. But it grew into make an unjust or prejudicial distinction in the treatment of different categories of people or things, especially on the grounds of race, sex, or age. But indiscriminate means this, done at random or without careful judgment, all of which can lead to rather ironic sentences such as this, because I am unable to discriminate between edible mushrooms and poisonous ones, I cannot pick and eat them indiscriminately, which forces me to discriminate against all the mushrooms I find in the field. So there you go, one sentence with all three definitions. Now this is an amusing concept when applied to mushrooms, but it's not so funny when we apply it to people. And this is what our text is about today. Yet before we get completely there, let's take a moment more and pause and recognize that discrimination in all its potential for injustice and unfairness is one of the primary tools we use to survive. For example, mushrooms. Somebody better be able to discriminate between the poisonous ones and the edible ones or we're not going to make it. We discriminate every time we pick fruit at the grocery store. I've seen you. <laughs> or when we ponder whether or not to eat or drink things that we find lurking in the back of the refrigerator. I mean, it's all milk, right? Why should I care about some arbitrary expiration date? Well, that will be an amusing question you can save for the attending physician at the hospital's emergency department when you arrive there in gastronomical distress. But what about people? Is it always wrong to discriminate between them, or must we always be indiscriminate in our dealings? And again, we see in this, there's no single simple answer here, for there are times when to discriminate is wrong, and other times when to be indiscriminate is stupid. It seems we get into trouble when in ignorance, we generally discriminate or in ignorance are in general indiscriminate rather than when with knowledge we act in discriminating carefulness. But even these implied guidelines can be perilous for sometimes sufficient knowledge to righteously discriminate can be elusive. Perhaps the best way to describe the problem is to say we are at our worst when we are indiscriminate about our discrimination. We try hard to act upon what we know, but do we know enough to act in righteousness? Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Such a simple story to tell, yet so much is being said. Now, it is a default assumption to us that Jesus does not act indiscriminately when he calls an individual to be his disciple. 
Instead, he righteously discriminates between those whose hearts are or will be truly set towards God's purpose from those whose hearts will not, excepting from this, of course, Judas, but we're only considering the general case today, and thus we will discriminate against all exceptions, which is all well and good except for the fact that Levi himself, the tax collector being called, is a pretty crazy exception, isn't it? But enough of these mental tangles. What about Levi? Or also he was called Matthew. The biblical account is very sparse. So sparse, in fact, that seeming that the seeming indiscriminate behaviors of both Jesus and Levi seem practically inexplicable. Jesus invites a random tax collector to join his band, and that random tax collector leaves his lucrative work for poverty and joins Jesus. Seems a little far-fetched, doesn't it? If you're a discriminating person at all, you know there's got to be a backstory here. For one, why a tax collector? Tax collector. And so that you again understand the offense, while I don't want to be indiscriminate and to discriminate all at the same time, let me make this clear. Tax collectors were bad. And it was not considered discrimination to shun them and to hate them. Even Jesus knew tax collectors were bad, and he used this truth as a negative illustration. You probably know this text well, but you probably didn't think about the ending. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses." If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, what are you going to do? Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's pretty strong words, isn't it? To summarize Jesus' point, a brother or sister in the faith who sins against you and does not repent, even when the church agrees you were right, should be treated like a tax collector. And that's not good. Yet here is Jesus in Luke chapter 5 calling one of those really bad people, and it's in all caps here. I said it that way so you'd understand. If I were texting, you would know what we were talking about. Really bad people calling one of them to be a disciple. Now, I just love when Jesus, love Jesus when he's merciful to me and to all the people who I feel deserve mercy. But boy, does he make me mad when his seemingly indiscriminate mercy goes beyond where my discrimination demands his mercy should stop. We're all guilty here. Luke 5, 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. There's got to be details missing here. And you can find some interesting context on this story uh, written by Ellen White in her treatment of this story in The Desire of Ages. But even there, I think you're going to find some of these details are limited. Uh, 
Here's how I imagine the backstory goes. Though I state this not with biblical backing, so receive it for what it is. These are my presumptions on this story. This is how I imagine it happened. It seems to me that Levi, or Matthew, has been a tax collector for some time and has likely profited somewhat indiscriminately from doing so. Yet it seems he has not totally sold his soul for gold and has had a heart that is open and ears that hear what the Spirit says. Perhaps he heard the preaching of John the Baptist. Luke does specifically mention tax collectors in this passage about John the Baptist. Luke 3, verse 12. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. So perhaps Levi is a part of this group, and perhaps he'd even been practicing these reforms for a little while now. And then I imagine that Levi heard about Jesus and had come to believe that Jesus was the one that John had spoken about. Perhaps Levi managed to even sneak into the crowd following Jesus a time or two and got to hear Jesus for himself. But as I imagine it, Levi probably was pretty clear that his place in this crowd is on the edge. Oh, sure, Jesus would probably call disciples, but those roles would definitely go to people much more deserving. Though I'll bet he kind of wondered at this point. There were only four disciples so far, and they were all fishermen. So you had to wonder a little bit about who Jesus was picking. I like to imagine that the night before this encounter at the tax office, Levi had been in the crowd when Jesus made a strong appeal. And as a result, Levi had committed his heart to faithfulness to God and to follow Jesus. Now that's how I like to see it. That's how it makes sense to me. But that probably says more about me than it does the Bible story because that's kind of the normal reality that we think about. Well, I went to a special meeting and the the speaker made a special appeal that night and that night I gave my heart to the Lord and committed myself to follow Jesus. That's, That's what makes sense to us. So that's kind of how it plays in my mind. But that probably says more about me than Levi But on the other hand, perhaps we don't have to discriminate too strongly against my imagination here. After all, this story is short on details, and it seems reasonable to imagine that Levi has been through some sort of conversion experience. And it probably wasn't a one-on-one with Jesus, because I don't think tax collectors were doing what Nicodemus did, making arrangements to talk with Jesus. I think they knew better that, no, well, we really shouldn't do that. We're not really welcome there. So the experience, I imagine, is likely a sufficient backstory, so long as I don't start claiming this is the real story and then try to turn my imaginings into things we all have to do. I like to think Levi was sitting in his tax collector booth pondering the message of Jesus at the very moment when Jesus walked up and spoke those two words that would forever change his life. Follow me. Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, 
and followed him. In the story in my mind, Jesus had a very good reason, a discriminating reason to call Levi. And I believe Levi showed almost immediately that Jesus had used proper discretion with his discriminating choice. Verse 29, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Now, don't completely miss the point. I'm not here suggesting that tax collectors as a class were great people, and in truth, they were just misunderstood. Isn't that what we say? Well, no, it's not true at all. Tax collectors as a class were unprincipled, immoral, greedy, and lost. This is not a gathering of good guys. And as a general rule, one was not being indiscriminate to discriminate against them. Yet in Levi or Matthew, Jesus discerned a heart longing for righteousness and a spirit that was willing to live out that commitment. And so when Jesus called... Levi did more than just follow. He immediately joined Jesus in his work in the way that he, Levi, could best do it. He didn't just follow Jesus. He joined Jesus in his work. And Jesus honored Levi's devotion by agreeing to be the guest of honor in a house filled with the unhonorable the tax collectors, and the sinners. Not surprisingly, not everyone was impressed. It seems there were still some discriminating enough to not approve of Jesus' indiscriminate actions. Verse 30, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, it's it's one thing for Jesus to be talking to a group and tax collectors to hear. And maybe it'd be okay for him to interact briefly with one of them after that or in a setting that was totally within Jesus' terms, but to sit and eat with them? Which reminds us, this is week two of our spring series, Tasting and Seeing. Sometimes life changes at the table. This is the small group series. I hope your group has gotten underway because this series has some great stories that you're going to want to reflect on with each other. If you haven't got a group, we do have two groups that meet here at the church. Pastor Steve has one on Monday nights at 7. I'm here Tuesday nights at 7. But I don't want to lose our train of thought here. Jesus, why are you eating with these people? Doesn't doing so suggest some kind of indiscriminate sanction upon their bad behavior? And don't we know that hanging around with the wrong kinds of people can, over time, be like poisonous mushrooms to us? After all, it's as the Apostle Paul says, 
1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come on, Jesus, have you never read Paul? Okay, they, yeah. Probably not. And what kind of message does this send to our children? Are we saying it's no big deal who we hang around with? These are difficult questions and questions that a church cannot take lightly and questions no individual believer can lightly dismiss because if we lightly dismiss these questions, we are in danger of falling into one of two traps of being a generalized discriminator, we always say no, or being generally indiscriminate. We don't have any decent boundaries. And as we noted in the open, both of these options are bad. And let me further add, I believe Jesus was not either of these things. Jesus was indiscriminate in that all were given the chance to follow, but very much a discriminator in that he called to be his disciples, not those who would make him popular with the leaders, but rather those, save Judas, who would in the end commit themselves fully to the mission of Jesus to carry forward his mission to this day. And if one of those that was willing to do that turned out to be a tax collector, so be it. But isn't it interesting that if we were to look for a generalized discrimination in Jesus, we might find what might appear as discrimination in this. Jesus did call fishermen, and Jesus did call tax collectors and even zealots to be his disciples. But he didn't call any Pharisees. Jesus explains this ultimate action well enough to, in his answer to the Pharisees at that meal at Levi's house. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in these words, we find the basis for Jesus' discrimination. Jesus cannot save those who do not believe they need him and cannot see how his call to repentance applies to them. But he can and will save all who answer his call to repentance, even if they're tax collectors and sinners. It is a shocking reality, this indiscriminate discrimination that Jesus employs, revealed so well in the summation statement in a parable that Jesus would tell that later on this Levi or Matthew would one day would later record for us today. Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So what is the conclusion? Make no mistake. 
Jesus does discriminate when it comes to the kingdom that he's building. But the discrimination of Jesus is not such that it keeps any of us out of the kingdom simply because of where we started or where we are now. Jesus is wholly indiscriminate when it comes to starting points and where he finds us. Instead, kingdom discrimination is based entirely upon the willingness or unwillingness of those who hear Jesus to get up Leave everything and follow him. This story of Levi is short on details, and I think that is good because it allows all of us to imagine it and put ourselves in this story. And in its simplicity, this story shows us all what we need to do. We need to listen for the call of Jesus. When we hear him, we need to get up and leave our old lives of dishonesty and immorality behind and follow Jesus. But we're still not done. And then join him in his mission. Then get involved. It's not just a call to to get saved and then hang around waiting for the next event. No, get involved. Hold a banquet in honor of Jesus at your house and invite all those people that no one else would even be willing to talk to. The Pharisees thought Jesus ought to discriminate against the tax collectors and sinners, but in the end, it was their attitude that cost them their seat at Jesus' table. So can you see yourself in this story? Are you Levi sitting there at the tax booth? Pretty sure Jesus has no idea who you are. Pretty confident he's not going to call you. Well, I hope you aren't the Pharisees in this story. If you are Levi sitting there at your booth, when Jesus calls, will you be ready to respond? Will you be ready to leave everything and spend the rest of your days working with Jesus wherever He calls you, whatever that means in your life? There's only one right response when Jesus calls. Get up, leave everything, and follow Him. And then... Join him in his mission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have been indiscriminate in that you have made salvation available to us all. And you have been indiscriminate in that you have invited us all to join you in your mission. Lord, the choice is up to us. Help us not to see ourselves as too good for you or too good for your people, but rather to come to you, to leave behind everything that must be left, to follow faithfully, and to serve. 
In Jesus' name, amen.